I'm kind of a method director, mm -hmm. <laughs> meaning I absorb my subject as much as you can, you know, and again, it's like music, film, everything. Like I'm just trying to be like, what is their ethos? And then I try and make a film that best represents that ethos. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, director Morgan Neville takes us behind the scenes of his new documentary, Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain. The film reveals how Bourdain went from chef at an obscure New York restaurant to a best-selling author, world traveler, Emmy-winning television director and producer, and one of the most notorious and beloved figures in the food world and beyond. Roadrunner was screened as part of the DGA's documentary series, which aims to spotlight groundbreaking nonfiction films by presenting screenings of documentaries, as well as conversations with their directors. In addition to Roadrunner, Mr. Neville's filmography includes the documentary features 20 Feet from Stardom, Keith Richards' Under the Influence, and Johnny Cash's America, and episodes of the television series Ugly Delicious, Abstract the Art of Design, and American Masters. He was nominated for the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Documentary for his 2018 film, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Following the documentary series screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Neville spoke with director Ondi Timoner about filming Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. What an undertaking. Yeah, another round of applause. Thank you. I mean, first of all, I remember sitting down with you, I guess it was like documentary filmmaker, like five of us or something, having drinks right before the pandemic, December. And I said, what are you working on? And you said, I'm embarking on Bourdain. How, what a journey to take during, during COVID as well. And then uh, 100,000 hours of footage or something like that. How do you begin to decode uh, someone that complex and with that much footage, um, like where did you, where'd you start? Yeah. It's hard. I mean, at the end of the day, I think when I actually really, I redid the math, it, I think there were about 20, 20 to 25,000 hours of footage, all things, you know, being equal. I think we went through about 10,000 hours. There were a lot of episodes. I mean, basically when you're starting to get into it, there were a lot of episodes he did that, they're like the ones that mattered to him more, you know, particularly like an, if he do a season of a show, they would do a couple of domestic episodes, which some of those are great, but some of them were like, oh, we can do the cheap domestic ones so we can go do more international ones. And the international ones were the ones that really yeah, you captured his imagination. Um, and any episode anybody ever talked about, or, and he would write blog posts as about the episodes. So you could kind of tell where he was more engaged. And often when you were looking at footage, you could see very early on in a scene, if this was like, if he was bringing it or not, if it was like, oh, it's just a food scene. Or if it's like, he's there because he has a point he wants to make or he really wants to learn something. So it's kind of learning, hanging out with him, making this film, which we did do, we edited almost all of it during COVID, which in a way was kind of like a, a gift. I mean, I have to say, to be able to like hang out with Tony and travel when we couldn't leave our houses was actually kind of a great, like we kept saying to each other, like, thank God we have this film and each other to be working on this right now. It was like a great, a great project for all the kind of 
all the other pressures that we were going through. I mean, it was gorgeous too. The photography. I was so glad that they talked about Zach, who filmed it, yeah. and you know, it unfortunately was in that Hong Kong episode uh, where he was fired. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah. And it's funny because, I mean, the early episodes, as you can see, are not beautiful. <laughs> you know, it's actually amazing how bad they look. Um, but again, that was like Chris and Lydia with PD one fifties running around doing the sound and the picture themselves. Like the, literally the first, the crew on season one was the two of them and Tony, like not a sound person. And even to the, to the end, they rarely used a sound person, which is kind of amazing because he really wanted it's to keep the crew small. Like it's amazing how small, even to the end, how small those crews were. If you could see under my mask, I'm smiling yeah. very widely just because we were just talking about how yeah. there was no business in documentary back then no. anyway. No. So who had a sound person? <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. You but, know, I, um, but I mean, you were up against such a challenge because you were taking on this film about a man who had committed suicide and um, you didn't want it to be about that. There's A movie could have been made about him well before that, you well, know, such a complex it could have been. character. And, you know, the reason I wanted to make the film was because I was a fan of his, but more because... You know, I wasn't a super fan, but I, you know, I'd read Kitchen Confidential, and I think I'd read Medium Raw when it came out as kind of second autobiography. And I had mutual friends with him. I'd done a show called Ugly Delicious with David Chang, and I got to know a bunch of people who all talked about Uncle Tony all the time. And I knew kind of what he meant to that whole world, and particularly the world of like alternative food media and all that stuff. And like, and he was a guy who like had his own imprint where he would publish, you know, unheard, you know, under service voices and food and media and mysteries and, you know, and really like put his name behind things that mattered. Whereas he would never put his name behind anything commercial, you know, and people kept saying like, you could just put your name on a pizza chain and retire. And like, that would have been death for him. There was no way he was ever going to do that. Is that the uh, inspiration for the title? Tell us about the title. Well, the and title the was, I mean, you know, part of what, again, in getting to a film um, with a character, to me, it's about absorbing in the beginning as much as I can. And so I started, I'm also like a music fanatic, so, and Tony was too. So I collected every song he ever mentioned, you know, and he had put together playlists that he had posted online. Um, but everything he mentioned in the footage and in his Instagram posts, and I put together this playlist that's 21 hours long. It's on Spotify. You can see it and listen to it if you want. And it's great. Wow. You know, I got, you know, lots of people very excited about that playlist. I gasped. Yeah. I gasped with Anemone uh, by Brian Jonestown Massacre. Yeah, well, exactly. You've got a connection there. I thought Anton was going to pop up on the screen. I was yeah. like, Morgan interviewed Anton. And Tony did love that song, you know, and loved the band and... And Anton was in an episode of Parts Unknown in like Berlin. He cooked right? him a lamb or he something. He lives in Berlin. Right? Yeah, he lives in Berlin. Yeah. So anyway, so I put together this playlist. So I was listening to the music. You know, he was a cineast, so I was watching all the movies that he loved. And um, and part of it, it, this is actually really interesting, that particularly later on when the show could actually be more creative and he had more time and money and resources that he would send a film to the crew and say, I want this episode to be like this film. 
So, you know, they did Rome, it was the conformist. You know, when they did Boston, it was the friends of Eddie Coyle. You know, and they would sometimes, you know, literally like change their lensing and cameras to really, uh, to mimic the effect of that film. And it was like a way of him of having an approach into, into some city. So there was an angle on it. So that, so absorbing the movies in addition to the music and the books, you know, and going back and rereading Graham Greene and Hunter Thompson and Joseph Conrad and all the people that, you know, he had talked about. All to say Roadrunner was one of these songs. He loved the modern lovers. He had spent all these years in Massachusetts. And I just thought, oh, Roadrunner. Like, that should be the name of the movie. I should open the movie with Roadrunner. And that was, like, one of those, like, first thoughts. Yeah. Like, way back in the beginning. And someone says he's a runner yeah. towards the end of the Well, film. that happened later. But, I mean, before I had even done most of the interviews, I kind of just had this idea. I was like, surely I'll come up with a different title or a different song. And we tried and thought about it. And I was like, it couldn't be that easy. It couldn't just be that. But then suddenly I was like, it has to be that. Yeah. And it just stuck. Well, you see, I mean, he's pacing, pacing, pacing. He's seeking, he's grasping and for answers. Um, and, and it's really, yeah, it was interesting to me to just think about your journey in that, you know, you seem personally like a filmmaker who is, you know, pretty balanced and I, you know, I don't know exactly, but it, you're, you're exploring someone who's really riding an edge through a lot of this, you know? Well, yeah. And it's, he's running and he's searching and they're two sides of the same coin, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a searcher um, and searching we think of as being a good thing, but if you're an Uber searcher, you know, then you're, you're kind of lost. I mean, I, there's this scene that we had had in there and there was this footage of him getting a tattoo when he was maybe 50, 56, um, where he gets this tattoo that says in ancient Greek, I am certain of nothing. And, and Tony kind of loved that idea and it's feels very, you know, kind of Zen and, you know, but the more I think about it, you know, when you're in your late fifties and you're really certain of nothing, there's something kind of tragic about that. When you've tried everything. Yeah. If and you, that you've got a every, kid and people that love you and success, you know, for him to, to be kind of searching and curious and uncertain in that way that became a kind of a North Star, to me really meant that he was, he was because he was always moving ahead, he was never hanging on to the things behind him. So he was always kind of lost, you know, and I, I keep thinking of him, that kind of searching, you know, I kept thinking of the image of uh, lady from Shanghai with the, the hall of mirrors. I kept picturing Tony in this setting um, because I just, I felt like he was somebody who was doing the right thing to such an extreme that he turned it into something that was actually self-destructive, you know, his romanticism. Again, I mean, this is all the things that made him great great were the things that were his flaws. You know, it's great to be romantic. It's great to be curious. It's great to be a searcher. But if you do those things to the nth degree, they actually become liabilities. I think Iggy Pop is probably the heart of the film to me. Like that, when he drops that note, it's, tell me about that. I mean, that, that moment to me, 
when I came across that, I was like, oh, this is it. Because it's one of those things where, yeah, I mean, as you see in the scene, like Iggy's his hero. I mean, his real hero. And for Iggy to say something that surprising and so true, you know, to appreciate uh, love and the people who give you that love. I mean, that's the message he needed to be hearing. Mm -hmm. And I know from spending so much time with so many people in Tony's life, there was so much love for Tony from people who knew him, from people who didn't know him. But it was something that he just couldn't feel, which is something he knew. I mean, he talked about it. He says it in the film. His face when Iggy says that is just, oh, man, wait. I don't know how to do that, you know? Yeah. Not that I, he didn't know how to love, but just to feel the love, it seems like. Um, yeah. But what's interesting about your film, too, is that, and the position you were in with this massive editorial mountain is that everyone who you're talking to is in the footage. Um, and it's really a, a matter of just culling through just all of that to find these incredible moments where you see, you know, the woman who works with him. Yeah, Helen. Oh, I mean, my it's, gosh. I mean, we set up some other rules for ourselves making the film. Like nobody can talk in the film until they're introduced in the film. <laughs> so in the beginning, you know, it's just this kind of idea of like, let's actually meet the people in the film. So you know, ideally, exactly who everybody in the film is and how they're connected to him. And, you know, I I think there may be 18 interviews in the film. I shot 33 interviews and some great interviews, you know really cool people and who had interesting things to say. But I, I just started feeling like it was more and more important for the audience to have a relationship with the people in the film, to really know who they were and how they connected to him and that we could feel his loss through, through their pain, I guess. And that if it was just this kind of sea of talking heads, that it would be more impersonal. Mm. So I ended up really just calling it down to the, to the 18 people. Let's talk about the challenge of making making those interviews happen. I'm about about a man who everyone who you're talking to has felt the grave loss of and somehow feels I mean uh, uh, to lose someone to suicide, I think everyone who's been through it, you wonder what you could have done. So they're all experiencing some some kind of irrational guilt probably, right? And their grief is right there. And, uh, and you're walking into a minefield as a, as a filmmaker. How did you go about that? And, and it, there must have been, yeah. And I, 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 under, I read somewhere that you were pretty exhausted from it, too. It was like almost therapy. Like you were- oh, it, was, it wasn't like therapy. <laughs> it was therapy. Because a lot of people, and this is the kind of thing, you know, when you first decide to make a film, I was like, I, I mean, I felt- simpatico with Tony. I felt like Tony was a documentary filmmaker in many ways. You know, I was like, and he was somebody who was fighting the good fight, who was trying to humanize people on the other side of the planet to show, you know, sharing our commonalities and, you know, all those kinds of things he talked about and, you know, the, the value of curiosity and travel and being open-minded. Like I just, I, that was what I was like, yeah, I totally am on that mission. And then I was like, oh, but I really, when I started making the film, I was like, I really have to reconcile that with what he did and kind of the destructive journey he was on. And in spending time with so much time with so many people in his life, 
it just became more and more apparent to me that like I had to give that space in the film. I mean, I think if I had made this film in five years, it probably would be a little, it wouldn't be so raw, you know, but when I started talking to people, that rawness was so, it wasn't even under the surface, you know, because a lot of people in the film, particularly around suicide, people feel guilt, but they feel shame. They feel like they can't talk about it. They can't burden people around them with it. And so when I showed up and I was like, let's talk about everything you're feeling. So many people said, I haven't even talked to my spouse about this. Like I haven't really told them what I'm feeling. And those interviews, like normally my interviews on a normal documentary might be 90 minutes or something. And I instantly was like, okay, it's like one day an interview, like, these are just going to go and go and go and often would go after the interview and we just keep going. And like, and that, yes, it was hard, but I was also like, I am so grateful for these people to be trusting me and to be kind of going on this. Like it felt like it was helpful. Like I wanted the film to be helpful to help them come to terms with it and to help the public in a way come not to give them a tidy answer. Cause Tony would have hated that. And I don't think it exists, but to at least give people some understanding of how to think about Tony and what he did. Because I feel like when I first started making the film and I would talk to people and say, I'm making a film, but Anthony Bourdain, a common reaction I would get was, oh, you know, I just, it's so sad that what he did, I haven't been able to watch a show. I don't want to think about it. Like, I just have to like put him out of my mind. Like it was such a, such a disconnected event from people's perception of him that I think they just short circuited how people felt about him. And I wanted to create a more holistic picture that people could at least understand the connections between the guy they thought they knew and, and the guy who killed himself, you know? So, so the whole thing was an act of therapy, you know? I mean, for him, I mean, for the interviewees, for the, for me, hopefully for the audience. And I say that in a good way, you know, like I'm grateful for those things. Yeah, no, it's, it's a really, really deep exploration of a person who also, uh, you know, you have so many layers going on because also he really did have, I love the opening and him just waking up and getting out of bed and smoking that cigarette and writing. And it's such the, you know, I'm, I'm see, I was seeing that sitting next to, well, I was, I knew my nephew was in the audience who's only 21 and I was thinking about him as a writer and how it's like a hero, right, to watch. And it's very important the way you treated it because, yes, it's heroic and he is this artist who's on a quest and he's the chef who's wondering why the fish is late and then he's suddenly got a show and then the show blows up and next thing you know he realizes actually, you know, Beirut, that, tell us about that. I mean, that was a huge turning point in his life and so you're mapping this career of a man who realizes who he is and what he's interested in, in the, in, and then kind of burns out on every single thing, it seems like. Well, um, yeah. And again, like I kind of made a decision to start the film where we start, well, for a, a number of reasons, but you know, the film starts when he's 43 and you know, Kitchen Confidential is published. For those of you that read Kitchen Confidential, he had a 20 plus year career that he wrote about in the kitchen. And I kind of felt like, the this starts where Kitchen Confidential ends and that they're actually very complimentary. And But if I was to tell the early story, and I talked to some people from his earlier 
life in the Kitchen Confidential days. But, you know, there was, there's no footage of that time, you know, and it just, it would have been a different quality to the film, but also, um, it just would have, to me, felt a little bit like a greatest hits album. Like, remember that story? Remember that character you like so much in the book? Well, here's that story again. Like, I just didn't want to do that. And to me, it was more interesting to have somebody who in middle age has this transformational success and has kind of given everything they always dreamed of. And does that fix him? I mean, that becomes the story. And that, to me, was a much more interesting story to tell. Um, the, the line where he's alone and he's on, he's like, I don't know whether it's better to be alone in a shitty circumstance yeah. or whether it's better to be alone in a gorgeous place where you can't share it with anyone. It kind of summed it up, you know, his ennui at just his success. Success is definitely not going to make happiness for him. No. I mean, that's, it. you know, spoiler alert, you know, you know, money doesn't uh, buy happiness. Right. You know, it's like we, we know these things. You know, but they may, I mean, it's the sense that they may prolong, you know, or may distract you from your unhappiness. Yeah, alleviate. You know, I mean, I I talked to, you know, several of the people in the film, I asked, what do you think would have happened if Kitchen Confidential had never come out? And the answer I got most was he would have killed himself earlier. That this was, and whether or not it's killing himself literally or doing it with drugs or doing it with self-destructive behavior. There was certainly a self-destructiveness that was there for a long time. I mean, if you read Kitchen Confidential, it's amazing how fatalistic and dark that book is. I mean, he talks about this kind of behavior. There's a passage in Kitchen Confidential where he is imagining being hit by an ice cream truck and dying in the street. And he says, as I lie there dying, am I going to regret that I didn't, you know, sleep with this woman or eat this thing or go to this place? And he said, no, the only thing I'm going to regret is how much I let down the people who cared about me. And he wrote that in 1999. Well, that's what I can't get my head off is he left a daughter behind. Yeah. You know, that part to me. I mean, as a parent, I, that's the thing that I think for a lot of people is just how do you do that, but you do that by convincing yourself that people are better off without you. Right. You know. Which the, the that brings us to Asia, yeah. Asha, Asia, Asia, who didn't sit down with you um, yes. for understandable reasons, I think. Um, but tell I mean, me, tell me about. I didn't that ask her story. to do an interview. You didn't even ask, right? No. Okay. And you know, part of it. I mean that part of the complication of that story is like, and if you've read about it and if you get into the, um, you know, like the, the machinations of that relationship is so complicated that it had this gravitational pull that, and I played with it in the edit and the more we got into it, the more it just made people ask more questions. And the further it got me away from feeling close to Tony and more it got me into kind of trying to explain tons of stuff that didn't really matter. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the thing you need to know is that Tony was kind of had had this domestic relationship that didn't work and was looking for something dangerous and looking to kind of chase these highs again. The last year of his life, you know, you see it. He kind of, the leather jacket comes back. He starts smoking again. He starts drinking like a fish. 
you know, there's a kind of behavior he hadn't, he'd kind of put away for a long time that came back at the end that I think wasn't because of Asia. I mean, that was, you know, she was, she fit into that model he had for himself. It's the line about addiction. He just turned his addiction to her at that point. Yeah. I think his producing partner says. Um, I mean, I think that's one read of it. But I feel like, am I wrong that in some ways the, I mean, at least in, in the story of this film, the heartbreak from that, the deception or the, the feeling that he had, that the tabloids had, you know, that she was there with this other man. I mean, it was just, that was if, if Iggy, what Iggy Pop said and that love is the thing and he really truly loved her. I don't yeah, know. I, I mean, it's, I, uh, I'm not saying, I'm saying one could also read it that it's not heartbreak, it's humiliation. You know, that maybe they did have an open relationship. You know, and maybe it was more the fact that he felt ashamed of, you know, so publicly being seen as being, you know, cuckolded by his girlfriend mm. in a way that really would have been painful for him. For anyone, yeah, frankly. It's really, yeah, very tragic. Well, how about you? Um, this Where does this fit into, so, I mean, one of my favorite films of yours is Best of Enemies, uh, another yeah. film that's just rife with conflict. Um, I love that film. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking about, you know, I'm thinking about your How do I go from Mr. Rogers to Anthony Bourdain? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) From Mr. Rogers to Anthony Bourdain. Um, Yeah. Is, is, what's your, how do you break things down? I mean, is it basically form follows content in every film? You just kind of sink your way into. I'm kind of a method director, Mm -hmm. (laughs) meaning um, I absorb my subject as much as you can, you know, and again, it's like, music, film, everything. Like I'm just trying to be like, what is their ethos? And then I try and make a film that best represents that ethos. Um, you know, a film like Won't You Be My Neighbor, it was like being as pure and simple and deep and loving as you could possibly be. You know, and a film like Best of Enemies is about, you know, kind of hyper-intellectual conflict and kind of people arguing about the nature of society in this kind of battle of egos and wills, but a film that has a kind of a, it's like a boxing match. It's, there's a chaos to it. And so this film to me, I mean, it's interesting because I read his memos he would send on edits of his episodes. You know, we quote a couple of them, but you know, so I, I had a lot of thinking, you know, insight into what he thought about how things should be edited and what kind of storytelling he wanted to do. And to digest it, it's pretty much break all the fucking rules, be punk rock. If you're doing something that's safe, you failed. You know, like push the boundaries is pretty much, is creatively push it as far as you can. And so in that way, I was like, okay, okay Tony, like you're telling me to do this. And in that way, you know, and it's everything from the music to the editing. Um, to the deep fake. To the deep fake. Um, Tell which, us about that. You know, that, that was fun know, to read. I read about it in the LA well, Times. I think everybody and, read about it. Yeah. You know, and it's funny because in the beginning, like in the very beginning when I started thinking about the film, I just thought if you make a film about Bourdain that doesn't have his voice in it, something's going to be missing because the thing that made his show his show and made us have a relationship to him is his voice, his writerly voice. So I was like, I just... I feel like if he was 
if this is like Sunset Boulevard and he's narrating it from the grave. And, and I knew he loved Sunset Boulevard. He actually shot a uh, recreation of Sunset Boulevard in uh, his first show, Cook's Tour, floating in the pool at the Chateau Marmont across the street. Um, and, and it seemed like the kind of thing he would be into. And I talked to everybody about it. And I didn't, and I said, there's this new technology and we could use some of it. And then when I finally went into what he wrote and said, I actually put together a binder that's 500 pages of like every quote he said in books, in the show, books on tape, podcast interviews, like him on every subject that I was interested in. And then I sorted it by subject. And so I had this like this is what Tony thinks about everything. You know? That's I want to see that. And oh. it's it's <laughs> interesting amazing. because you know he was his own best subject. You know he was always the star of his own story. He documented and told his own story again and again. So what I realized is he talked about almost everything. You know, and so there were just a couple of instances. His description of Vietnam, where he's talking, it's like a pheromonic thing. That was a quote he had written talking about Vietnam, and I just thought it was so beautiful and better than what he had written in his VO for the Vietnam episode. And then there was the email that David Cho read to me, which to me seemed very obvious that it was, you know, not that we wouldn't have him saying that. And then there's the quote in Nashville when he's getting the tattoo, which is kind of reflecting on celebrity. And, yeah, and it was like, 40, 44 seconds of stuff. And I thought, you know, it was kind of punk rock. It is pretty, so I it's did it. pretty punk rock. Yeah. So, you know, so you took, so you, so you took the words and then how did you do it? They were like, his quotes. And then we, uh, we tried a couple different companies. We ended up working at a company and we, um, created a model of his voice and we did revisions and how do you create you know, a model? It's not easy. No, I've never done it yet, but I'm yeah. excited. Um, I mean, I will say <laughs> it's it's terrifying. The day the story broke, three other people called me and said they're doing the same thing right now. <laughs> right. I mean, it makes perfect sense. I mean, um, it's, it, when it's a posthumous film like this, as well, it's it, it's very. It seems like an intelligent move, but at the same time, so the way you do it, it's not like you can just type in a sentence and it'll do it. I mean, so what you do is take a large amount of audio that you have. And the larger the amount, the better it works. So we had maybe 10 hours of audio that we gave, and it built this kind of model of how his voice works. And then we would give them a kind of a, like we just read an inflection guide of like where the emphasis is Mm -hmm. in the sentence. And then they, they, they would give us back a version of it. And then we'd say, you know, that word sounds weird or that thing's not right. You know, and so it was some back and forth. And then in the mix, we would fix it. But at the end of the day, like I said, it was a few sentences. <laughs> like, so for me, I was like, oh, it's like kind of an interesting, edgy technique. thing we're doing. A that, technique, right. Um, so there's just a lot of negative, there's a lot of like we were saying, you know, earlier, it's a lot of negativity around AI and, and it's triggering. What's well, scary? Bit. I it's scary. Me, it's like, I'm not, you know. Yeah what can happen in terms of, you know, what are, 
what people say in our politics and what right. world leaders For say. For sociopolitical like, warfare. You know, there are, you know, and I do feel like people, if you know my work, you know how much and how deeply I care about the subjects I'm working on. But I think, you know, from what I understand, um, people got quite upset. Oh, I so. I didn't think... Uh... I didn't think, at least in the article I read, it didn't seem damning of you. It just was a portal through which well, to look at the pervasiveness I, of the technique. It's interesting because you know? so many doc filmmakers have reached out. I mean, you know, because I've, I mean, what it's what people do with Frankenbiting. Oh my God. Which is what, you know, yeah. which is way worse. It's all in the edit. Way worse. Yeah. You know, where people are literally. I, I've you know. sometimes offered, you know, I've yeah. been in situations myself where I've had a subject who is very reluctant to, to speak because yeah. they, they, they believe I have a certain point of view yeah. on a controversial subject. And I have offered to send an uncut version of that interview yeah. to them to sh so that they can see that the edits that I put in the film are truthful yeah. to their intention. And I stand by that. I think that that yeah. should be a, a way to handle that, that that should be maybe a way that we need to, to treat our subjects yeah. sometimes because they should have that right because it is so easy to manipulate what people are saying um, in the edit. Yeah. And certainly taking Anthony Bourdain's exact words and running them through a filter to have his voice speak them yeah. is well, is not a manipulation of his actual intent. Well, you know? and, so that's why again, I don't find it's it. It's like I, you know, I can't say what he would have thought. I can say what he did think about how to approach things and like push the boundaries, push it, push it. And, you know, and I, I'm happy with that decision. Um, would I have done that with Mr. Rogers? Like, no, <laughs> again, like that's not his ethos. Right. You know, it's a totally different thing. I always you say know? form should follow content in my yeah. opinion. No, and so absolutely. I want to make sure to yeah. not, uh, to, I want to allow the audience to ask a question or two. Yeah. And I know sure. we only have a few minutes left I'm hearing. So, is there, yes, right there. No, the estate didn't have to give us any permission, nor according to CNN, who was making the film, they didn't want the estate was, that was not against CNN's rules. Like the estate was not supposed to have any permission. You know, I, I had final edit and the estate had given that to me. Um, you know, his, the representative for the estate, who is Kim Witherspoon, who is his kind of work wife, his manager for agent for 20 years, said to me, she said to me before, and she said to me after everybody got angry about it, she's like, Tony would not have cared. That was her quote. Well, then it's fine. His brother was yeah. like, I think it's clever. Like, his longtime assistant and co-writer was like, really, this is, Tony wouldn't have given a shit. Like, yeah, I would only lose sleep if those people yeah, had an issue, yeah. you know, or Tony himself. And um, that would be it. So... Yeah. Well, you nailed it. I really do think you you did you did ride that wave, and you you did it. You know, you presented something that he would love, that also you know puts a, a very important so, sober close on it. You know, it's very important. So, congratulations, thank and you. thank you for sharing with yeah. us. Thank tonight. you, everybody, yeah. for coming out. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q and A. If you'd like to hear more from our documentary series, check out episode 307, featuring director Matthew Heinemann discussing his documentary feature, The Boy from Medellin, with Andy Timoner. You can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.
This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. <laughs>